Yeah, thanks, Tom. Well, first of all, I think it's fair to say that the fines have certainly gone up a pace in GDPR since it came in. And we had a first couple of years of relatively little action, but that's certainly changed in the last 18 months or so. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to another episode of Life with GDPR. In this episode, we take up some recently released information from the European Data Protection Board, which issued draft guidance on calculating fines under GDPR. This will be important for every compliance professional and indeed compliance professional to help understand what the potential fines and penalties might be under GDPR. I know you will find this episode both interesting and useful. We're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and then we'll be back with Life with GDPR. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox back again with Jonathan Armstrong for another episode of Life with GDPR. For you non-math-inclined compliance professionals, this is the episode for you, because we're going to take up the new fine calculator. No, it's not a Casio 1980s device. It's the new fine calculator from the EU. And the European Data Protection Board has issued EU GDPR fine amount calculation guidance, which, of course, Cordery Compliance has written about. So, Jonathan, what did you see in this Um, guidance that compliance professionals, data privacy experts, data protection experts need to consider moving forward? Yeah, thanks, Tom. Well, first of all, I think it's fair to say that the fines have certainly gone up a pace in GDPR since it came in. And we had a first couple of years of relatively little action, but that's certainly changed in the last 18 months or so. So, Of those fines that are public, we're sitting just under the 1.5 billion euro level, and that's around about 1,500 fines. And I stress that's of those that are public because some of the data protection authorities only publish figures once a year. So that, you know, might not be the real time figure. But there's also inconsistency in the level of fine. Spain, for example, has brought the most fines, 480, as we broadcast this. But only, I think, around 11 of those fines are more than a million euros. So a lot of fines with a relatively small amount. And that might contrast with other countries like Luxembourg, for example, that's only brought 28 fines, but that includes one of 746 million euros. And of course, at the other end of the scale, there's Portugal, for example, geographically uh, similar place to Spain, admittedly smaller, but only six fines in Portugal versus 480 in Spain, and then places like Latvia and Croatia with even less uh, public fines, 
at four apiece. So the whole idea behind this uh, EDPB policy, if you like, is to try and bring consistency. And there are, if you like, two uh, thoughts here. The first is to try and get um, authorities stepping up to the plate and finding bad behaviour when they see it. And the second is to have consistency in those levels of fines. And some of the driver uh, is this lack of consistency, as I've said. And another part of the driver is arguments, notably with the Irish Data Protection Commission, where a number of EU data protection authorities have criticised what they perceive as leniency on behalf of Ireland. And this matters particularly because many US corporations have their seat for EU GDPR enforcement in Ireland. And then one last thing to say as the prelude, of course, these uh, new guidelines are guidelines. They're going to be subject to court review, so people can still appeal through the court process. They'll do that through their domestic court process initially. So they are guidelines rather than strict criteria. And the UK isn't subject to this guidance, although the UK Information Commissioner's Office already has established guidance on how it finds, which is similar to this EDPB guidance. And that UK guidance is currently subject to review as well. And so what does the guidance say? Well, it's meant to be simple. It isn't perhaps in the simplest language it could be, but it does set out a five-step calculation methodology. So first of all, DPAs have to work out whether there are multiple infringements or just one. And so this could be, you know, multiple uh, failures to deal with data subject rights. It could be multiple data breaches. Secondly, the DPA needs to set a starting point for the fine. And in GDPR, different classes of infringement have different fine levels. So for some, it's 2%, for some, it's 4%, etc. So they uh, are meant to go to GDPR itself next to look at the classification of the fine, then to look at the seriousness of the infringement. Is it top end, low end? And then look at the turnover of the organization. And you'll remember that there's this catch-all provision that if you're low turnover, then the fine's a monetary amount rather than a percentage. Thirdly, you look at aggravating and mitigating circumstances. This is something that the ICO are normally pretty transparent on. Normally, they will publish uh, monetary penalty notices giving you know, what, made the what made the thing worse and what made it better. Uh, the Garanta, the Italian regulators, also pretty good at this. And so the, the, the third exercise is to move that starting point up or down depending on 
past and present behavior, which might suggest that the fine would be increased or decreased. This, uh, as an aside, is a critical part whenever you're dealing with a data breach, for example. If you can show that you have learned lessons, that you have mitigated the effects of the data breach, your regulatory outcome will be better. So oftentimes, it's going to be a good idea to pick up guidance like this, even in those first 72 hours of a breach, to see how you can improve your situation. And for example, for our clients, we will quite often pull from a database that we have on mitigating factors depending on the incident and suggest things that you could commit to doing to a DPA to help with this third stage assessment. Then fourthly, the DPA has to look at the relevant legal maxims for different uh, infringements uh, and obviously you can't exceed the maximum. I'm slightly confused as to why that isn't covered by the earlier steps, but it's there as this fourth step. So you just check back again that you haven't exceeded the maximum. And then fifthly, you have to look at whether the calculated final amount meets the requirements of, and I quote, effectiveness, dissuasiveness, and proportionality. And if it doesn't, then you can uh, again move the fine up or down, subject again to not passing that legal maximum. So, um, so cosmetically at least, it's a relatively straightforward test. But obviously, uh, the devil is in the detail, and businesses will need to concentrate particularly on that whole bit around mitigating and aggravating factors. The calculations have, uh, or rather the fines have been pretty wide ranging across the EU. And obviously fines that are very large get more attention. But how do you assess this in terms of, I don't want to say run of the mill, but uh, not the Google, not the Apple, not the Facebook, the company that we may not have heard about before they got into trouble and just the routine enforcement action, does this really provide guidance for either a company or, or a data compliance professional uh, to help understand what the range is going to be? Once again, uh, not really looking towards some of the, the bigger ones that we've seen. I think it will. And particularly at the lower end, you can construct an argument to say that because the fine would be so low, there might be a possibility of avoiding the fine at all. You know, you can, in certain circumstances, when the facts are in your favor, if you have, let's say, for the sake of argument, a data breach, let's say there are mitigating factors. So let's say you have tried to make any potential victims whole you've offered them two years identity theft, you've reached out to them personally, you've offered them guidance, you've tried to uh, retrieve the documents that went missing and you've been successful in that, then you could argue that 
that this proportionality obligation means that the fine is pretty low and that the corporation's efforts might be better spent in more uh, mitigation and remediation rather than a public fine. So you can certainly see this guidance being useful at the bottom end as well as at the top end as well. And certainly in the right circumstances, I can see, you know, in the cases that come across our desk, that we'll be putting a lot of weight into this uh, guidance. I have to say it's, it's, it's draft guidance at this stage, but we'll be putting a lot of effort into looking at this and looking at our processes to try and raise good points early in the process, but also to look at those aggravating factors that are likely to annoy uh, regulators and increase the fine and increase the likelihood of fine. Jonathan, I'd like to pivot just a moment uh, for some quick thoughts uh, to a different topic, which are the UK government's announced plan reforms to the UK data protection regime. And notice I said UK, not GDPR. Uh, Did you see anything in these uh, announced uh, modification changes, or if we can use the controversial term reform, that uh, really uh, intrigued you or thought uh, you thought it might take... uh, what you used to advocate under GDPR into a different direction now? I think the first thing to say is we're pretty thin on pro, uh, on detail. It's early in the process and it isn't a done deal. And the second thing to say is it will not lead to an abolition of data protection law in the UK. The UK has had data protection law in place since 1984 that predates the EU directive, which in turn predates GDPR. And in many respects, UK law is tougher than GDPR. For example, there are criminal offences in the UK Data Protection Act that don't exist in GDPR. You know, criminal offence for deleting data, that would have been disclosed under a subject access request, a criminal offence for re-identifying data that was anonymised, relatively easy to commit in an internal investigation, a criminal offence of refusing to return data when the data controller asks for it, again, relatively easy to commit in in an investigation. So I don't think that bit will change. I think the driver for this is UK government perceives that GDPR is a barrier to business and a barrier to innovation. So I think we will see some tinkering around the edges. If I were a gambling man, that would be around things like research, where it is perceived that GDPR prohibits research. Of course, that's not true. But we've had a long-running investigation into Google DeepMind and the efforts of the health service in the UK to try and improve clinical outcomes by sweating large amounts of data. I think there are cases like that 
which will be used to justify adding research potentially uh, as a almost like a permitted activity under GDPR, uh, you know, just as consent would make an activity lawful. I think that there is a concern about the perceived burden of data subject uh, requests. Obviously, a number of government departments, police forces, hospital trusts are, as we said in another podcast, on the naughty step for the way in which they've dealt with data subject requests. Some of them I hear have backlogs of more than 7,000 requests. And the government's decision is either to put more resources into answering those requests and obeying the law or to change the law. And in the past, the UK had a relatively nominal fee uh, for answering a subject access request. And I can see a scenario in which that fee would be reimposed. That might be at a relatively trivial amount, let's say £10. But from our experience, around 50% of subject access requests went away when you asked for the £10 fee because oftentimes people make subject access requests when they're mad at an organisation. When they're asked for the £10 fee, they've calmed down and they don't send the money and the request falls away. So I can see in those two areas where there might be tinkering. I can also see potentially uh, some, let's just say, more generous mechanisms for transferring data from the UK to the US. I should stress that that isn't, isn't a done deal. We've obviously got the new IDTA, the new Data Transfer Agreement, for transfers from the UK to the US. And uh, I, I don't think that the UK government would, by primary legislation, make the US a safe destination for data. But that's another area when there, where there could be some tinkering. So I think there may be tinkering around the edges. But I think despite the somewhat radical anti-EU nature of some in the current government, I think most of them are sane enough to realise that the UK can't jeopardise the adequacy decision. It obviously suits both the EU and the UK that each of them regards the other as a safe destination for data. So I think with that in mind, the ability of the UK government to alter UK domestic law and keep its sort of special relationship with the EU is somewhat limited. So from a personal point of view, I wouldn't expect too much that revolutionary, but I would expect some changes to be brought in on the justification the data protection law needs to be more business friendly. And my final point I'd say though, Tom, is whether making the law different from EU law 
makes it more business friendly remains to be seen. If I'm a US corporation, one of the real advantages of GDPR was that, in theory at least, I had one regime that covered most of Europe. If we're going to introduce differences, even if they're concession-driven, that still makes it difficult for US corporations. You know, if you receive a subject access request, there's a relatively straightforward process these days that you can map out in a flowchart, give to a relatively junior member of staff to administer. If you're going to get complexities of if in jurisdiction A, ask for a fee, if jurisdiction B, don't ask for a fee, that whole process becomes more complex. And so UK government needs to think carefully about whether adding concessions actually increases complexity because that might go against the very things that it's trying to achieve. So, Jonathan, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode. Uh, We're going to link to multiple articles from Quarterly Compliance website on these topics. And uh, once again, as with it seems like almost all topics that we take up on Live with GDPR, I suspect we'll be visiting this topic again. Absolutely. Thank you, Tom. This is Tom Fox. Thank you for listening to this episode of Life with GDPR. We're going to link to the quarterly compliance client alert on this topic. So I hope you will check that out. The uh, link will be in the show notes. I'd like to tell you about two recent limited edition podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network. The first one celebrated 100th anniversary of the publication of James Joyce's Ulysses. It's entitled Ulysses at 100. Lessons for the 21st Century Compliance Professional. The second is Never the Same, Why Business Has Changed Forever After the Russian Invasion of Ukraine in Five Key Areas, Supply Chain, Sanctions, and a Corruption as National Security Issue, Cybersecurity, and ESG. You can check out both of these podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network. The Ulysses series is under the podcast series, Greetings and Felicitations. This is Tom Fox. Thanks so much for joining us, and I hope you'll join Jonathan and I again where we take up another issue around GDPR. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.